Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens, strength coach, powerlifter, Helling Games athlete. I run Strength Guild and a bunch of other stuff. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I... Do the Flex Diet Cert, and faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, and my very last day in Hood River, Oregon. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm Dean Guido. I'm a meathead slash fit bro slash uh, online nutrition coach from Canada. Canada, eh? <laughs> Canada, eh? Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you, you might get that today. <laughs> All right. Let's get to one little tidbit of news. It'd be it'd be fun to get Dean's input on this too. This is um, from late spring of this year, so it's new. Strength and muscle sport news. The power of protein. This is from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Um, this is just sort of. This isn't the actual article. This is sort of their opening editorial that sets it up. But it, I like it because it kind of cuts to the chase. Um, by Simpson and Robinheimer. So it says, there's a growing consilience, there's a word, of evidence suggesting a central role for protein in the control of food and energy intake in humans. So they look at data from 13 countries um, with a certain amount of gross you know, domestic product and that sort of thing. Um, in the U.S., we eat 16% protein, 48% carbs, and 33% fat. And that's been pretty consistent over the years. My old textbooks say basically the same thing. Um, Here's where it gets interesting. Patterns across the 13 countries were concordant with findings from the United States, with a mean percent protein intake also being 16% of total calories. The proportion of protein in the diets of 14 countries was highly consistent, whereas calories from fat and carbs were more variable within and between populations suggesting that humans regulate their intake of dietary protein more strongly than they do of other macronutrients. It says this uh, amount of protein every day is within the acceptable macronutrient distribution range, so the AMDR, which is about 10 to 35% of your calories. For those of you who aren't familiar, the, the feds would just say, if you're excited about protein, you like the satiety or the metabolic boost or protein synthetic effects, whatever you're after, they suggest don't go much above 35% of calories, not because there's something toxic, but you might not get enough variety in your diet, you know, that sort of thing. Um, 80 to 85 grams, if you just look at gross in intake, okay? So highly consistent across countries, about 80 to 85 grams a day. I know a lot of our listeners would be like, I eat that in a meal, bro. Well, you may, <laughs> um, but you're probably doing that intentionally in some way or just because you're eating heroic amounts of food. It says at a relative intake of one gram per kg body weight, this is somewhat higher. Again, this is the gen pop. Somewhat higher than the RDA, which we know is 0.8 grams per kg. So this article in this journal that they're, they're editorializing about, Lieberman, um, conclude that their results lend credence to something called the protein leverage hypothesis. And I think this is curious because this is actually something over the years Mike and I have independently come to sort of teach clients or even I even mention it in the classroom uh, but this idea that if you count grams of 
protein from lean sources of food, that's a pretty effective first step at dieting, right? Because it's satiating and, and that kind of thing. But here they're going a step further and they're saying people are remarkably sort of homeostatically, you know, seeking a certain amount of protein and everything else is up for uh, debate. Uh, anyway, it says this, these data lend credence to the protein leverage hypothesis, which proposes that because of a strong propensity to regulate the amount of protein eaten, humans are at risk of obesity when the proportion of protein in the diet falls as a result of diluting the food supply with calories from non-protein sources, that is, fats and carbs. The original insight for the protein leverage hypothesis came from the observation that whereas energy intake had risen uh, during the emergence of the global obesity epidemic, absolute protein consumption remained remarkably stable. So in other words, we're still looking for that number of grams of protein. If it's in low proportion foods, like if you're trying to do it, let's say with bread products, it's got like three grams in a serving, you know, kind of thing you're going to have to eat an awful lot of bread, you know, or Mike's talked about this with um, Mike, you mentioned like plant proteins before. If you want to get an yeah. effective dose, like gross yeah. dose, then you got to eat more uh, sometimes twice as much. So anyway, it says, why um, is this such a big deal? Why do people seek this standard daily dose of protein? It says the answer likely lies in the need to balance the cost of eating too little protein, which would result in poorer growth and reproduction, against the cost of consuming too much protein. And then they say, for example, accelerated rates of aging and late life health impacts. Now, again, I don't think they're saying the protein is necessarily causing the health impacts because it says nutrition is about mixtures, in the next sentence, in fact. And if you're going to try to get your amount of protein from dilute sources... You know, you're just eating more calories, and that's going to lead to, you know, speedier aging and that kind of thing, potentially. So, anyway, protein leverage hypothesis. Your body's going to seek a certain amount of protein. Uh, and, again, I think one of the, the practical applications of this might just be, you know, hey, bro, get, get your protein. Count grams of fairly lean protein food. So, like chicken breasts, things like that. I don't mean like a triple cheeseburger, you know, from the fast food joint. That's mm -hmm. not just protein. Um and it's, you know, satisfy that homeostatic kind of thing that uh, human beings, almost regardless of where they live, seem to want to get that level. So Would that play into, like, if, if you needed to lose weight, you would upregulate? Well, it's a good question. I mean, all they're saying, the protein leverage hypothesis just says, listen, regardless of where you are, you know, you want that dose. And then, um, yeah. yeah, how you get it is really the thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I guess I, I, that's a good question. And, I mean, I don't know. Like I said, the only practical application I've ever drawn from something like this, and I know Mike has too, is try to eat, you know, fill up on protein, seek this amount, more or less pure protein foods. Again, something like a chicken breast or a whey protein drink or something like that. Um, and satisfy your body's desire for that, I suppose. So, and you know, Phil, this is not unlike what you do too, where you talk about, listen, protein is constant. What goes up and down over the course of the year when you gain and loss is mostly carbs, Yep. you know? So yeah. protein leverage hypothesis. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I like that. I think that's, that's pretty cool, especially to have that much data across different uh, populations. And I'm always fascinated and it's very hard to do this research now, but if you think that we're survival based right we made it this long that having some internal cues to get a minimum amount right like several hundred thousands years ago we're not walking around with scales trying to measure mm -hmm. everything out you just went by appetite and what you could get which was variable um, but having that sort of internal drive to seek particular foods i'm always fascinated by and we've kind of moderately you know corrupted all that so it's hard to do research now on it per se um, but yeah, even similar to like fats and carbohydrates, I've wondered if your body is kind of more tuned to burning carbohydrates that appears your appetite then wants to kind of replenish those more, maybe not in the, the best light either, especially as you're borderline on a pathology. Um, but it's interesting with protein that we have data showing that it's pretty consistent uh, across the board. And like you've talked about Lonnie and written books on, 
you know, even having more protein generally tends to, to help other things. But I think we also forget as a sort of lifting community that's based on, you know, protein seekers. When you have a new client that a lot of times it, it's hard for them to get that much protein in. You know, I always tell coaches, like, think back to the first time, like, you went from, you know, 80 to 100 grams of protein a day to, say, 200 or something like that. That takes time and effort and work and planning. And, you know, after a while, it does become more habit. But I think it's easy for us to, to forget that if that's something new, that, that that takes work to do it. Yeah, I think that's why shakes are, of course, so popular. You know, Fort- yeah. Fortress used to complain all the time about, God, I have to eat so many cans of tuna and broccoli, you know. And <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> drink it, bro. <laughs> so that's all I've got, though, so. Cool. Awesome. And we have our guest today, uh, Dean Guido, and he wants to, do you want to introduce what the topic of the day is? And then we're going to ask about kind of your, your background there. Yeah, like a simple version of high flux would just mean, um, I guess if we're talking, are we, if we're talking bro, bro and, and lifters, it, it would essentially be, can we get to a point where instead of eating less calories and doing less work, we can kind of burn the same amount of um, energy by having more energy in the system, so eating more and moving more. And then you would kind of tailor that based on this conversation even about gaining weight or losing weight just at a higher energy intake. So essentially solving the problem of can I eat more food and lose or gain weight? Um, and so for bros, it's can I eat more food? <laughs> you just tell you to walk more. Got it. Or lift so more. You're- you're yeah. basically still looking at the calories in, calories out equation, but we're now yeah. looking at it, say, between 1,600 calories in and out, you know, which is, let's say, calorically even. Compare that to maybe yeah. 3,500 calories in and out, even oh, though yeah. it's still calorically even. Is there a difference between, you know, Bob and, you know, the second person, Bob later in life, Bob two or something? Yeah, it's just like comparing, it, it, from my perspective anyways, and where I was coming from was in terms of weight loss clients, like do I want Bob, please Bob, um, do I want to have Bob who's eating 1,500 calories and white knuckling a, a weight loss diet, or do I want a Bob where I can have him eating 3,000 calories um, and still having those same goals, considering where Bob lives, which is for us North America and Western society, which it, it likes its food, and you mentioned hamburgers, but there's hamburgers everywhere. <laughs> And so yeah. it's just like, which Bob do you want? Got it. Awesome. And how did you initially get into weightlifting and now you work as a nutrition coach? What do you got you interested in this whole field? Yeah, kind of keep it short. <laughs> I think we all have uh, our own story, but I have the cliche one, um, which I'm sure you've heard before, but it's basically ex-athletes. So I played college football and then I actually became a teacher because I had a few injury years, so I needed to stay in school just a little bit longer to play football. And it was just, uh, what can I what can I get into that I like? And it was essentially teaching. And then um, that ended up being the plan because I didn't make pro. So like any um, athlete, my number one and two goals was to, to be a pro athlete, and that never worked out. So, um, yeah, then I became a teacher, and... I kind of found myself needing something to do after football was done, right? So, like, I left with uh, uh, tons of injuries. So I had a hip surgery and a knee surgery, and naturally, I decided to be a powerlifter. So, um, that makes yeah, sense. I, I did power. Yeah, like, in I was totally messed up, and my knee and hip hurt. But I actually, um, I was also a bouncer. So typical athlete football bouncer. Um, all my bouncing friends or dormant friends. We're all powerlifters, and they were multi-pipe powerlifters. So naturally, I, I went straight to West Side, bands, boxes, um, full multiply gear. And yeah, I basically did that for about three years, and I did well, but I found myself as a teacher thinking about lifting pretty much 24-7. And so somewhere around, I want to say like 28, I switched to essentially personal training and then kind of through all that learned all the stuff I learned and I met people like you and kind of the PRI, DNS, kind of hooked up with Ben and Pat Davidson and just kind of created a network through that. And then I opened my own training studio and somewhere along there, I closed the training studio and became an online coach. And now I currently work for Stronger You doing online nutrition. 
Awesome. So yeah, like basically ex ex athlete, always a meathead, and kind of went through that whole progression career wise and kind of online, which works right now where the world's at. So yeah. If you were to go back and do the progression again, which I think is probably typical for a lot of lifters, are there things in there you would change? Yeah, wouldn't have I wouldn't have done multiply lifting, um, but you know what? It just messed me up because it was one of those things where the gear masked my inevitable knee injury, but my hip injury just because it like it made me I was able to lift a lot really fast, but being a meathead like I was I was at one month post like hip surgery so it was just I was just young and dumb and I wanted to lift weights with my friends and um but I think at the same time you you kind of got to go through that like I went through the whole like like lifting and and bench press only as in high school and do an arm pump and then you kind of go to naturally just lifting as much as you can and I think without those experiences I wouldn't have um I wouldn't have liked lifting and grew up in a generation where it was still, you still lifted a lot and you lifted hard and you kind of went to the gym because you liked the gym. And so I got that experience. And so I'm grateful for it because I still feel like that's the right way, obviously. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I've thought a lot about this and had conversations with other people too of, I don't know if there's anything you can do anymore. If someone is hell bent on just going through that phase of trying to, figure out where the the borders are and they just inevitably put the car in the ditch a few times like i don't know if you can yeah. really talk them out of it per se maybe a few people you can but i'm at the point now where i'm like maybe we should just put little bumpers on the side so you're gonna just let you screw up and just don't total the car in the process like I, I don't know though. Like, the, the, <laughs> like one weird thing is like everything I've learned lifting wise or been pushed towards has literally been from every injury yeah. I've experienced. So, I mean, and that's where it's kind of right now. Like my biggest gripe on my on my podcast, we kind of talked about is we've kind of lost that ability to like be stupid. Because I, I think that and I don't know how any of you guys are, but like a lot of the good stuff came out of the stupidity and. And you can kind of, once you get smarter, you can kind of carry that, um, that go hard attitude into smarter stuff. But you kind of got to, you got to hit the ditch, I think. Maybe at least once. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you, now I'm at the point of, I think you do just, can we do whatever it is to give you the minimal amount of damage, but still have you learn the lesson? It's like, just don't <laughs> entirely total the car and mess yourself up for five years, but Maybe blow a few that's tires true. and, you know, dent the bumper and that's enough for you to figure out what you need to do. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Phil, with new lifters you work with? Yeah, I mean, the only thing you could do is hopefully share your past and try. Yeah. But like we've yeah. talked about it before, I'm not sure there's a – like there's just certain stuff you have to go through yourself yeah. before <laughs> before you come not stupid. I mean, they're, you can t- like I can tell them over and over again, and then they do it, what I yep. don't want them to do, and they're like, oh, you were right. Yeah, yeah, I was. So yeah. now <laughs> we actually do it. You know? So I don't know. There's I think there's, well, you there's don't, a little like, growth that you just have to go through. But Yeah, like, like you know, I had like that typical experience where like you're, you're bench pressing and you put on too much weight in the gym, um, and it was I think it was like 225, and I was like 17, and I dropped it on myself, and you had to roll it off in the middle of the gym, and like I never did that again, and I I used the spot because it was very embarrassing. <laughs> you had to like get it up to your hips and then roll it off your knees and then act like nothing happened. And you're deadlifting <laughs> in front of the bench, <laughs> yeah. but if you don't have that experience, like you kind of, yeah. I don't know, like it hardens you. So. Yeah, I, I do kind of agree that the end end goal is to I wouldn't say maybe lift stupid but just be able to put a lot of effort cleanly and safely into something or I don't even know like when you first start out if anyone's really trained to do that and if you had a couple old injuries on top of it that always just seems like the recipe for you to just blow yourself up Yeah. That was the one benefit, and we're both mutual friends with like Ryan Lacure and, yeah. and Pat Davidson. But like a lot of that metabolic stress stuff, and even those strength circuits. When I was having my own facility, it was one of those things where it was it, that was the teacher because it was light enough where it didn't mess them up, but it also like 
there was a goal and they they couldn't be worse every workout but they actually like learned how to lift and I, I use stupid, but they actually learned how to lift hard because at that age, especially with newer people, like one RMs don't mean anything because mm-hmm. it's going yeah. up by 300% in yeah. six months. It's nothing to do with you. So that's where that kind of stuff tends to, you can kind of burn working hard into them and then you can figure out the rest later. Yeah. I mean, that's why I use a lot of rower for, for stuff. You know, if it's a, a meathead, it's like, just get on the rower and do a 500 meter, like do an actual all out RPR, or I'm sorry, rating and perceived effort RPE, nine and a half, an actual 10. And then, yeah, then tell me how that went. If you're walking around fine in 30 seconds, no, it wasn't hard enough. But I don't, I'm not super worried that, yeah, you can injure yourself, but the odds of injury are, are much lower. Or put them on an airdyne or something like that, or push a car, or drag a sled. or There's some things I think just mechanically when you get so fatigued, your risk of injury is just substantially less. And I would not put high rep uh, Olympic lifts as one of those unless you're an extremely advanced athlete. But, yeah. And you work for a nutrition training company now, Stronger You. Yeah, so like that kind of actually the the sem the seminar, but the the Kansas City Summit is that how you say it? Fitness Summit, <laughs> Fitness Summit, yeah, yeah, the the big one. Um, yeah, that same weekend I met you, I actually kind of met all the stronger you people, and I had a few of them on my podcast, The Fitness Devil. But it was kind of just through that conversation, we essentially started a, a fitness company on the stronger you side. So I, one of the owners of Stronger You Fitness, which services the nutrition clients. And then I now also work at Stronger You Nutrition as a one-on-one nutrition coach. So it was kind of a networking thing. But like, yeah, the same weekend I met you, I met essentially my employers slash partners. <laughs> and cool. and it allowed me to close my gym. Like it was one of those things where I didn't really want to close my gym. But I was it, just kind of that work-life balance thing. And I was making more money in less time. And it, the coaching online, especially one-on-one nutrition, you get a lot of reps. And it was just really interesting to me. So it was just a natural progression once all that was gone. Because I don't know, you guys can probably all relate to being a trainer. It's just, it's 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 tough. Long hours, weird hours. Um, and yeah, it depends. Like right now, like in this economy, like it would have, I would have had to close my gym anyways. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to that because people always ask for, you know, oh, what's your advice for being in the fitness industry? And, like, part of it is just go to events, you know, yeah. like meet people. Like, whether, you know, Lonnie and I have been to a whole bunch of academic events. We've been down to Phil's place. You know, we've been to all of us have been to events in Tahoe together. Um, and especially early on, it's like you probably are not presenting. You're going to pay money. And, Nothing may happen. I mean, I've gone to events where, you know, and looking back, nothing really ever happened to it. But I'm glad I went to it. And I've gone to other events and like ISSN in 2011 and ran into Lou Schuler and got an article about metabolic flexibility and men's health. You know, so it's just yeah. show up and meet people, have fun, try not to be incredibly annoying and yeah, just see what happens. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the 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 incredibly annoying is a good one because I think, and we've kind of talked about this in private before, but a lot of people go to events wanting something from people, or they're going to meet Lou Schuler and yeah. give him an article, when you could just like be yourself and kind of meet people organically, and that tends to lend well to all the things that people want, anyways. Like so. Yeah, I kind of hate the term networking. It's like yeah, yeah I get it. I. I know what it means, but one of the biggest, yeah, one of the biggest things I realized is that if you're, if you're, let's say, someone who's popular in the fitness world, whatever the hell that means, you probably have a lot of people that are just wanting free stuff from you all the time, and like highly specific stuff. Like Lonnie's had this, I know Phil's had this, you've had this. Like just random people are like, "Hey, bro, I need a, a program to, to deadlift 600 pounds. Just send it to me." Really? Like yeah. that one? Uh, where if you just talk to the person like another normal human being, like I always think of like what's something I have in, in common with this person. And then it's just more like a real actual organic conversation because you're both actually interested in it. And odds what's are that she's going to make you completely different than everybody else that they met too who's just trying to, feels like they're not intentionally, but 
the perception is they're trying to just get something for free, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how I think we met. We met with a three-hour conversation that ended yeah. in an RPR <laughs> session. <laughs> yeah. But it was like I didn't want that. <laughs> no one should want that um, once they have it. <laughs> but, uh, but that's how we met. Yeah. Talking about survival, I think you you did your survival spiel like the you know you you have your like yeah. intro survival like do you breathe do you da and that's how we met. Yeah, but what's cool even meeting you and, and Anthony at the same time is that I could tell by talking to you guys you had put a lot of effort into the things that you were studying and you actually did stuff about it. So you weren't yeah. just asking random weirdo questions. Hey, bro, give me a custom program. Like you had already done a lot of the reps and put time and effort into particular things. And to me, that's like super cool because that tells me that that person's, you know, invested in in what they're doing already. And for me, that's like, oh, okay, well, if I help this person, that they're probably going to follow through and and do those particular things, right? Because no one really wants to feel like their time is, you know, quote unquote, kind of wasted per se. Awesome. And... Cool. Anything else you want to add? And we'll transition into the topic of the day here. I don't think so. I think um, I kind of undersold my... I'm just a stupid meathead who lifts hard. But like I, like you said, I, I learned stuff. <laughs> I, learned I, stuff. I, I feel like I know a few things. I know but, stuff. <laughs> um, I, maybe that's more of an applied knowledge. <laughs> that's why I should have used that word instead of stupidity. Like applied knowledge. It's all relative. It's, yeah. What is like the old... I don't know, I probably slaughtered it as a, a Zen saint or something. Like, if you try to measure how intelligent a fish is by asking him to climb a tree, you think he's kind of stupid. But then you watch him swim around in water, you're like, oh, wow, maybe not. <laughs> so it's always context-specific. Like, if anybody asks me anything about history or anything that's just not even in, basically, physiology, kiteboarding, or death metal, I don't really know much of anything at all. I really don't. <laughs> You know a lot of studies, though. But, uh, yeah, I don't know how you guys are, but Mike's like my go-to. <laughs> yeah. They're not. You, you, they're not good yeah. luck. Awesome. Well, we'll do a short break here, and then we'll get into the topic of the day. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast, but over the years there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, 
But if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. And we're back. It's Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, myself, and... We're on with Dean about the difference in nutrition and training comparing a state of high flux uh, versus a state of low flux. And early part of the show, we kind of teased you with, we've got Bob who is kind of at a low flux versus Bob at a high flux and what may be some differences there um, and how this can be applied to your uh, lifting and, and body comp. Um, so how did you get into looking at this concept of, of flux? Yeah, I want to say it was one of your your podcasts, but I, I don't really know. It was, I kind of had to, we, we kind of met up at Ben's place in Costa Rica and we had to come up yeah, with... Dr. Ben House. Um, yeah, Dr. Ben House, um, King Meathead, bro researcher. But right. we had to come up with a topic to do, to present in front of, well, in front of everyone, but like... Essentially, we, had, we need a topic, and he's like, "You're gonna present in front of Eric Helms and, and Mike T. Nelson." I was like, "Oh, that sucks! Like, that's the last thing. <laughs> I'm, this this so is the last thing I want to do." <laughs> um, but it was like I needed something that was personal to me and kind of what I did because I didn't want to just do and like the whole thing was about pushing growth and all this stuff. But I really wanted to do something that was gonna push my career-wise, and essentially, I was doing it with my clients anyways because from my perspective, I deal with a lot of Gen Pop clients. And generally, like twenty-five to forty-year-old, and a lot of them females, but we have bobs. And the big thing that I always found was after a period of weight loss, you there was two options: you could keep white knuckling it, and by that I mean like keep lowering calories and like basically they did less energy, and that was kind of the the common norm. Is like, well, you just eat less, right, and you kind of work out more. And I found that like that didn't work as well. And, and what tended to work better was if I could slowly creep the calories up and what we termed as maintenance, people kept losing weight and they thought I was a magician. Like, oh, I can eat food and I'm, I'm, I'm losing weight. And then I found like the more I added in the steps and the activity and then just kept rising calories, it was just a better option for long-term weight loss because essentially what I found was if they can eat more food, they can have more, I don't want to call them mess ups, but they have more opportunities to not mess up. Because when you're eating 1,200 calories or 1,100 calories as a 120 pound female, there's no room for error. Like that's like we talked about 80 grams in a shake. Well, I, I could eat that for breakfast, and so and you could eat that at a fast food joint. So I found that people that were kind of above 2,000 calories for females and males, in and around that high 2,000s, low 3,000s, they just had it better long term. I just wanted to find out what that was, and I don't know if I found it or Ben basically said, "Oh, that's high flux." Um, I didn't know what that was. It was uh, like, and so I, I started researching that. And then like you find out with research is like, no one really has any terms nailed down and high flux wasn't even really a thing until I think recently. So it was just really hard. And so that's how I got started into it anyways, was a story of like, what is this thing and why is it working so well? And kind of that conundrum of, can I find a better long-term weight loss solution and not to think I'm going to change the world but like I felt like that was a better way of going about things especially in our current environment got it yeah and what did you find based on the the research when you looked into it well the one thing I found is like there's there's everyone doesn't call high flux high flux but the one med and type in high yeah, flux have a thousand studies show yeah. up <laughs> yeah, I realized that if you're going to like research a topic, um, PubMed's great, but especially with something newer, like they might not call it that thing. So I had to kind of figure out, but they did have a few new studies. But the one thing I found that was kind of the most intriguing was it people who 
were in high flux ended up having lower hunger ratings, which would seem logical, but that was a huge piece because it's like if you think about people in and I'm using weight loss clients, but people who are like losing weight or cutting, one of the biggest triggers is that hunger. And if they're hungry all the time, there's going to be more opportunity to kind of, I guess, screw up, so to speak. So that was a huge thing. It's like, oh, they could eat more food, but their hunger ratings dropped subjectively. Um, and the other one was, I think, you probably remember the name of the study, but they essentially compared um, eating more and moving more to eating less and kind of not necessarily moving less, but they were basically in a high flux and low flux. And again, the common knowledge, especially for a lot of my clients is, well, you just, you just eat less. And that was kind of the common message. You go on Instagram, we talked about, um, YouTube stars and all this stuff. It's like, well, just eat less, bro. And, or, or Karen or Bob or, or whoever. And it actually didn't perform as well. The people who actually predicted long-term, um, sustainable weight loss were the high flux people. And that, that kind of got me thinking like, oh, okay, maybe the story isn't that simple. And so, yeah, like there's only there was only like really three studies that were really checking out. I don't know if you saw any more new ones, but those were the two big ones is like they're they're not as hungry and it predicts long term weight loss way better than than low energy flux. And that was a huge, huge, huge thing for me. And then I kind of got into the Amish stuff, which we can talk about, too. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> the, the part people forget, right? Because you have all these people running around on the Internet saying, oh, it's it's just compliance and it's just calories yeah. it's not hard i'm like yeah that i always think of the dr Stu phillips quote he's like you know if we took the average person off the street and asked him he said do you do you know you should eat less and move more i think they're probably gonna say yeah he's like just yeah He's like telling the average person to eat less and move more he said is like telling a depressed person to just have a nice day <laughs> mm-hmm. Is it correct? Yeah, it's correct. Is it useful advice? No, it's completely worthless advice at that point. I think that's that's where it goes the rails. Yeah, and that's where the the applied stuff is huge because it's it's like we know things that work. Obviously, like obviously, I get people to eat less. Like right, like when they're trying to cut or or lose weight or have fat loss goals, like they're going to eat less for a period of time. I don't throw people in high flux. Um, because like they need to learn amounts and quality of food and, and movement and learn all those things that come with that. But it's like that when we talk about diets and, and people getting on diets and even people coming to strong view, that, again, if you t- come off the street and they think that they're coming into a diet, they're already expecting to just eat less. Like this is not rocket science to them. It's like, yeah, we're going to eat less and I'm going to figure it out, whether it's Atkins or Weight Watchers or whatever. They all consider well, they all have that appeal because you're going to eat less and you lose weight. But that's where it ends, and that's a that's a huge problem to me, anyways, because you can't do that forever. Like, because you did the starvation diets, but you, you can keep eating less, but like you, you'll be dreaming about food, and um, you'll be in a mental asylum with PTSD, and like that's not where we want people to be at the end of the day. And so it's kind of like that's I'm trying to figure out that part of it was the whole point of it. Yeah, and. <clears throat> I get yeah. to the Minnesota starvation study too, which we won't spend forever on because it could be a whole episode. But in that study, it was conscious objectors to the war, and they did put people on radically low uh, caloric intakes. They did keep people moving all day, highly supervised. You probably could never even get this study approved now. And yeah, they definitely lost weight. They were not overweight really to start with. It worked, but I think if I remember right, they had four people check into a mental institution at the end then they have like two guys break out and one guy was found in one of the stores trying to eat raw rutabaga i think (laughs) (laughs) i mean just people were hoarding pictures of cookbooks like it was pornography just i mean crazy stuff so even if you just nail the compliance and you're just getting radically low on your in and out that doesn't mean that you're not going to have some side effects from what you're doing either. Well, and, and that ends up being the benefit of high flux down the line because we even talked about protein intake over populations in, in earlier in the show. And it's just like with there's a difference between fat loss and weight loss. When you kind of push calories up, you end up getting higher. It's easier to get higher protein and get all that stuff. And so when we start pulling calories away, at some point, muscle is going to have to give. And we know, like, with long-term research and yo-yo diets, is like, again, if the if the common message is, I just need to eat less, a lot of the times, that doesn't include protein. 
And so they'll lose muscle and then it'll be harder and then they'll gain more back the next time and then they'll go to the same way. And it's like, maybe this is a better solution for all the same reasons why we talked about higher proteins better, but they're, they're not as hungry. High flux gets that. Um, they're moving more great metabolically. They're eating more. So in terms of environment, they're not going to be, they're going to have more opportunities to eat more food without it affecting their fat loss phase. And so it was just like, it, it's a no-brainer to me. I don't know. I, I know you You basically said that too. So that after, after I kind of learned it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go. Mike's probably talked about this, obviously. And, and yeah, you've basically learned everything about it. You could. And yeah, it's kind of like if Mike co-signs on it, I think it's a at least a good, <laughs> a good place to start. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'll ask Phil Amani their opinion here. And the first time I heard of it was from John Brardy, who did a G-Flux seminar, man, yeah. a long time ago with Charles Poliquin. And he had written about it, and that's the first time I really kind of came across my radar. And at the time, I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool, and looked at the research, I'm like, wow, this is pretty awesome. And then how, especially when you're early on, you think, oh, my God, this is going to, like, this is going to revolutionize it. It just makes so much sense, and this matches with all the research. And then you don't really hear anything about it for a while. We talked about it. (laughs) Well, the thing is with that, so, like, so Lou messaged me. I wrote that article for Rebel. And yeah. Lou Mississippi was like, great, great article, I love it. I was actually writing about high flux back in the 80s. He didn't say 80s, but it was like, oh, yeah. it, it, in early 2000s, he was writing about it. He learned about it from 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 John, wrote about high flux and men's health. It was a big thing. He's like, yeah, it just never caught on, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, because it seems like everyone wants a simple answer, and it, it kind of is just as simple as the other stuff. It's like, eat more, lift more, and, and and move more like that's pretty simple and no one wants that quick fix i don't know why like it's not sexy because i think it is you can eat more food like isn't that what we want i don't get it yeah yeah do you do similar stuff with your clients phil obviously you've got people competing in different weight classes and you've got some more focused on body comp than others well yeah i mean and just on the the topic he's talking about i mean that's it's always one of the first things people are like how the hell you lose 30 pounds and eat as much as you do? Well, I fucking yeah. train hard, bro. <laughs> you know, it's just like the old adage. Exactly. You know, when everybody talks about, you know, hey, I want to look like, I don't know, name any professional athlete. Okay. Well, have you tried training like them? You know, yeah. if you do what they do, by default, you know, most of them, especially in athletics, aren't looking to, they're not looking to look a certain way. They're a byproduct no. of activity. Yeah. You know, yeah. Want to look like an NFL linebacker? Hey, try go train like one. Magic things happen when you have to train five hours a day. For weeks and years on end. So, but that was like, the one when I pulled up that Amish study, so I kind of alluded to that before, and I found a study that Mike didn't find, which was like really <laughs> fulfilling to me. And Eric Eric Helms had no idea about the study, but yeah, they, they essentially talked about yeah, like I found this Amish study. Like they basically went to an Amish community and put pedometers on them and and just saw how much they moved and how much they worked yeah. and and how much they ate. Well, they didn't see how much they ate, but they have alluded to how much Amish people eat. But they're a byproduct of their environment, which is just they're farmers who don't use equipment. And they essentially solved obesity. There was mm-hmm. like I think it was like five. I don't know what the actual numbers, but it was so low that they solved all the world's issues just by farming. And walking, I think it was a minimum of twenty thousand to thirty thousand steps a day, and essentially almost anyone who knows Amish communities, like they don't eat well. Like they, it's like yeah. pre World War II, so it's like pies and cakes and and breads and all, all this stuff that's super high calorie dense foods. And they're sh- they were basically shredded. It was like I think they yeah. were all like six and seven percent body fat. And who knows, like if that's off a little bit, but they're not obese. Yeah, yeah and they the don't Midwest. they don't think about it. Yeah, and that's a problem here in the Midwest. You look at well, we're only. A lot of the people here are generation, one generation removed from being on the farm. Yeah. And yeah. all those eating habits are still there. They yep. eat like their grandpa did. But yeah. grandpa spent 14 hours in the field. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> you know? So it's no wonder the Midwest is pretty chunky. You know, uh, they, they haven't lost that, that eating habit that they had to have prior. But they, mm. they it's all mechanized now. You know, yeah. they're, they they're need to sustain work. Yeah, they need to work. You know, if you worked like your grandpa, you could eat like your grandpa. You don't. You sit at a desk all day, so you don't get to wake up and have six biscuits and gravy and then, (laughs) you know, a second breakfast. So, Well, that's where it's, like, really hard to – 
but not hard to convince people. It's easy to convince people who lift. And that's what I've found, like, especially with my, with my guy clients or my female clients that like lift hard, it's the easiest transition in the world. Cause they just basically have to get their steps up because a lot of times with exercise, they'll downregulate, uh, neat. So if you get their knee up, they can, you can just throw cal. It's, it's, it's almost like magic. They think you're like some guru and it, it's just more of like, because if you put farming down or even like a light farming to working out, we just think we're farmers. We lift lots of stuff. And then you add in the steps like it's 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 magic. And it's yeah. you're essentially just replicating being a farmer kind of. <laughs> but yeah. like if you have that mentality, like and a lot of lifters do, like they just want to lift a lot of weights. Like, cool. Like that's you're already in. Like you have pretty much half the equation down. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this topic, Lonnie? Is this something that you teach um, students in regards to metabolism and regulation? Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack uh, with a lot yeah. of this stuff. I mean, the concept of flux means there has to be massive output. So essentially you're asking for yeah, yeah. double compliance with both diet and physical activity. And this was one of my I, – I was kind of – discussing and debating this with john back in the day is well it's not really uh uh, we can't call this a diet it's a it's a two-pronged you know sort of massive lifestyle intervention um, Uh, because a lot of people they can't they can barely walk around the block so i guess it's it's easy to answer with population specificity right if you are already a lifter you know training like bodybuilder style to exhaustion four or five days a week um this is going to probably work great, you know, crank up the calorie input because the output side of flux is is just there, you know. And I mean, in the literature and, and you're right, Dean, you, you'll see lots of stuff like glycogen economy. You can call it lots of things. I know that's more carb specific, yeah. um, but getting stuff coming and going, it does require some definite barriers you have to overcome with people who aren't already sort of a gym bro. You know, if, if they if their exercise yeah. capacity is very poor this kind of does I think that's why it, it fell out and you didn't hear much of it beyond sort of yeah. the excited like lay magazines because you know yeah. there's when you work with gen pop people a lot y- you got to spend a period of time just getting them to train I mean well, the the farmer thing is out that you know grandpa farmer is gonna his lifestyle is gonna destroy <laughs> someone today you're gonna have to go like one quarter of the way to grandpa and get the flux moving at all. You know what I mean? So I guess my concern was is just sort of the behavioral thing is it's not a dietary intervention. It's a it's a lifestyle intervention no. and it requires a lot um again on the outside out, output side of flux, I guess. Was the negative part about it all was like if their lifestyle changes like let's say um Bob breaks his foot, like we're out the window and and so if you didn't teach the skills of all that, it's 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 not good. And that's why it's usually like is it a better solution? Maybe, right? Because it is. It, you basically need to have those things in line. And like you said, when we talk about compliance, it's it's hard enough on a good day to get people to do those things. So it, you almost need the person to. F- and this is the same thing with exercise. It's like, can you use exercise to burn calories and all that stuff? Yeah. Like the biggest thing was compliance and consistency. Especially in the research, they couldn't come up with an answer because like a lot of people didn't do the fucking workouts. And so it's just about finding the thing that is their thing, whether it's Peloton or, or lifting weights or CrossFit or rowing. Get get them in, find their thing, and then you just up the steps. And the steps yeah. you can't get around. Yeah, that's astute. It's it's got to be like what Phil was saying: is physique is an outgrowth or a, a byproduct of doing something you like maybe it's even hiking Absolutely. to get them started or you know what mm. i mean it's it's it saddens me to say it's not always the barbell work but uh, it, when you look at google searches and i do and i've been looking at it recently even with different podcasts people they they all literally they'll type in get slim no exercise lose weight <laughs> lose weight no workout you know, yeah. fast weight no, loss, no, no exercise. It, it's like the exercise part is almost the harder of the two. Yep. Uh, although, again, yeah, in our population, though, we all know it, it, there are people who just get stuck, right? It's like, dude, you are your your lifestyle is just plain abusive. You're you're training hard, yeah, and you're eating seventeen hundred calories a day. Um, yeah. And there's definitely that population that would benefit from this flux concept in a big way because they just don't like Mike with the Ansel Keys stuff. You know, like that stuff was just um, it's very informative. It's abusive, and you're not going to see it nowadays. These you know starvation studies yeah. and stuff. But um, 
it's it's fascinating uh, even, concept. Even walking. Even walking, though, like I think that's a big thing on powerlifters. I'm I'm really deep in the powerlifting community. A lot of them are are kind of understanding if they do a little bit of cardio or even like move more, mm-hmm. they can kind of keep their lower body fat percentages so that they can have yes. higher totals. But I was one of those people that thought ten thousand steps was stupid, and now I'm like preaching it to everyone. I feel almost like a crook, <laughs> but it's like, especially I'm a powerlifter. I don't walk. It's like ah, maybe you should. It'll get you stronger. But it's a hard. That's a hard mm-hmm. thing to sell. But it's getting easier because. People are understanding like movement's good, but they just don't want to exercise. It's well, and for powerlifters and bodybuilder types, it's like it's not intense, so it's hard to make yourself do it because you don't get that yeah. that sort of masochistic thrill, like a you know, beat me yeah. down, bro, you know. And but <laughs> Phil and Rob, both you guys, when you're heavier, walking every day, it's even handy during weight gain because mm-hmm. you know yeah. you kind of take off that little bit of fat in a very non non-intense fat specific calorie drain kind of thing yeah we're we've been huge components of walking man uh for years well, I think yeah. it, even, it even helps digestion and everything else i mean you just feel better yeah <laughs> it's sort of like yeah. um, the way a physical therapist does rehab like what you're actually doing in rehab is not intense it's just sort of going through a full range of motion and doing what they tell you while the body heals and it, it doesn't feel like a lot of in, um effort investment except the discipline to get out there and put one foot in front of the other at six o'clock in the morning yeah. you know when when usually the sexy sell for that is is body recomp and i'm using quotations but because i it's it's hard to sell anything else or it, and you could be in better shape and, and still kill yourself in the gym and it, it's it's one of those things where it's just a hard sell but it's actually really effective even i think you were talking about using carbs if you could put more energy in the system and maybe mike has something on this i asked krieger and he didn't know um but if you can get high flux and throw more energy in the system, and let's just say it's in the form of carbs, theoretically, you're always going to be topped up and you should have better workouts because they were seeing it in the weight vest stuff when they were trying to lose weight for comp. They could they could keep their workouts up. And I was like, oh, maybe like, you could work out harder as you go up in weight. So, But that's yeah. having more energy through the system, pulling it through. I, it's never a bad thing, especially if you want to lift the most as possible or, or have the most volume or whatever the hell your, your weightlifting goal is. Yeah, and I just think of it from use of carbs and use of fat, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're doing lower intensity stuff, you're training your body ideally to use more fat as a fuel because that's going to be a better fuel for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have more room dietarily to take in more carbohydrates. You're probably not so wired to be burning carbs all the time, so you're actually saving more glycogen for like true higher intensity work. So it makes sense that your performance in the gym should be better. So for people I have like doing body comp, I always watch their gym performance. So we're not stuffing them in a friggin' MRI every week to try to get accurate body comp. You know, maybe picture circumference, that kind of stuff. But it's it's not hardcore numbers per se. But I get worried if their AM scale weight is dropping pretty fast and their performance in the gym is just tanking. It's like, oh, maybe we're a little too aggressive and their HRV is just you know, coming super stressful. So you're kind of looking at these little indicators to see where they're at. If body weight is just kind of slowly going down, HRV is looking pretty good, performance is good, you're probably right on track, right? You're probably not going to be losing a ton of muscle and we're probably not at such a severe caloric deficit that it's impairing your performance. But we're seeing, you know, I know it's weight, not body comp, but we're seeing weight trend down. I think you're in a, a good spot with that. Yeah, you know that's what? It's cool to hear, like, <laughs> even hear that stuff, but, like, it doesn't, um, like, I'm dealing with, like, a, a weight loss community, but, like, yeah. the stuff, this G-Flux or whatever, they, it's it, it's used very little or tested very little in, in our population, which is where I want to see kind of what happens with that. And so it, it only it only happens if you kind of test the waters with that stuff. And that's where I like James Krieger's weight vest stuff because he's dealing in flux and body comp. And it's, it's just kind of, it's really fascinating, but he doesn't even have the answers because they're not really studying it. They have one study in humans and it worked, but like that's about all they got to. You know, the, um, yeah. the, the underlying concept I think is that there's, um, there's an unavoidable reciprocal nature of exercise, fizz and nutrition, right? Which is, yeah. and so many times in the fitness industry, you have people who study one or the other and you really, I mean, they're two sides of the same coin. You know, what is a carbohydrate? Is it an apple or is it muscle glycogen that's about to be burned? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Uh, 
and that's the, one of the things I like about the flux model very much is it does emphasize that it's both. You know, I, like it's really hard uh, if a dietitian might have one course potentially, you know, in sports nutrition or something like that, is that enough for them to handle the output side of the flux equation? Maybe not, you know, and by the the flip side of that is if you get someone who's uh, a strength coach and has really not had much nutrition, then, mm, you know, how are they going to address the input side of the flux equation? But th- there's no doubt, I mean, to, to completely understand this, and Mike, this is why Mike and I are the way we are, I think, probably, but you have to look at it from both sides. You have to read the literature from both sides because um, they're inextricably linked, right? You cannot separate, um, at least when you when you, you talk about recomposing the body or weight gain or weight loss or whatever. So, Yeah, I, I remember John wrote an article once for TMEG years ago more on exercise stuff. And, you know, his PhD, John Berardi, was actually in exercise phys. His research was definitely more on the nutritional side. Uh yeah, the article wasn't like super popular. Everyone's like, "He's a nutrition guy. What's he doing talking about exercise?" And I'm like, "He has a PhD technically in exercise physiology, I believe." Yeah. Like you said, Lonnie, it, even when you're trying to do both sides of the equation, that doesn't fit into the society's kind of expectation of of what to do, right? And even like the questions you're saying, Dean, with people, and you're saying, Lonnie, too, with what they're looking for and what they expect. They come in thinking that, oh, it's just exercise that's going to fix all my ills. Or, oh, it's just uh, nutrition. I don't want to do any of that movement stuff. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, and that, that's the problem as a coach, because, like, especially because we're a nutrition company, right? Like, yeah. we're, and so, like, I like to use the dark side of, um, um, what do you call it, influence, but I'll, I'll basically start with the end of mine. I'll, I'll just like throw them my article and give them my presentation just so they're like, oh, they start to understand like maybe this is an end goal because I don't, I don't mind telling people that they probably should exercise and move more along with this diet stuff, even if they're coming to me just for the diet stuff because at the end of the day, I know it's they're not going to be able to do it long term. Like there's very few people that can just attack it on the diet side and, and, and not and work an office job they can do it but they're they have to eat pretty low calories and that just it's just not really feasible in our environment it'd be different if you if you lived in the wild like you've looked at the heads of stuff like they're fucking hunter gatherers okay like they don't have the opportunity to eat uh, mcdonald's three times a day yeah and so it's just i have no problem selling that story even if it's not the best answer right now but no one else is really giving a better answer because they're going to google and they're saying how do i not exercise and, and lose weight and then someone will tell them this is the this is the diet for you and like it, it, it's not going to work like it, it it might but it's probably not going to work yeah i think but the general sell it to you. the general re- relationship is of course sort of reciprocal it's dietary changes are great in magnitude but short in duration right like they don't last yes. people regain no. exercise changes are mild but very long lived. Like if I, uh, when I was in San Diego, we had an adult walking program and over the literally like a decade, somebody might lose a couple of pounds. Remember they're not changing their diet at all. Um, and it's just walking, you know, with a couple of like light calisthenic type things, but it stuck. They lost, you know, a number of pounds and just kept it off. So I think that's why I you put gain either. Yeah. Yeah. And you put them together, right? So that way you get the magnitude, the potency that wouldn't be long lived on the diet side, but then you get the longevity of change, you know, from the exercise. And of course, study exercise fizz, and you can see all these adaptations. You exercise not because it's a calorie drain alone, you do it for all the adaptations you get mitochondrial density, et cetera, et cetera. So, well, and, and that ends up being the problem is that, like, you have to, and we talked about hiking. Or you have to find a thing that they're gonna do because, like, that's yeah. that's what I hate yeah, about that's a project is like, yeah, like I was trying to, I was honestly trying to answer the question of can I use exercise to up um, their calories essentially, and like they were all pretty much inconclusive, but they kind of all said working out's good for you, and I, all I came to that was like I guess it doesn't matter. They just need to do something. <laughs> like I don't care what it is, and that's that's hard. Um, because essentially, I don't think there's that many people that don't like something and they're just too busy to try something out. So it's just a matter of finding that thing. And it, our community, it's super easy. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, mm-hmm. that's 
like plus. Like well, there's the like muscle this. mass thing too. Here's me talking about mitochondria, yeah. but I mean, I, I yeah. my old Taekwondo teacher for many years, he used to say, you guys, it's like the lazy man's way to being lean. You know, all you do is lift heavy weights <laughs> and eat like pigs. You eat whatever you want. And I'm like, but that's not lazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're lifting a lot of weight, but he's right in that. I mean, he was an exercise physiologist himself. Um, yeah. All that muscle mass, uh, probably helpful, you know, so. Yeah, and that's why even in the flex diet cert and with clients, I really push them towards recreation, which I think we've kind of forgotten about in modern society. Because yeah. I get questions of like, ah, you know, I'm lifting four days a week and I'm afraid just to, you know, to go play tennis for an hour. I'm like, mechanically, you think you're going to blow something up or what? They're like, I don't know. Is that just too much work? I'm like, no, like just go play like have fun <laughs> right well i'm not I, well, what do i track like how many calories do i need before no it's just it's recreation <laughs> do something you love just yes you'll expend calories but that's to me that's not necessarily the point that's a, a cool side effect you know if you take mm -hmm. up tennis or walking or kiteboarding whatever you're a side effect of doing the thing that you like is you're gonna burn more calories and have a higher flux so it's it's kind of a win-win but it's odd that I need to give people like permission to go do these things. But that's <laughs> right. the problem with information. We we had this we had this talk with Jordan Shallow about like I was talking about being stupid and lifting, but we talked about athletes and what do athletes do or farmers do? And it's like yeah. that's what the gym bro meatheads they learn how to do it without all this information. And the same thing on the diet end is like it's almost like like the Amish people, they weren't thinking about it. They were just eating and doing more. And it's almost like we're using this high-end information to then be the reason why we don't do the thing that's going to work anyways, which is just like yeah. literally either working out or just like eating better or doing both. And there's a lot of people in the world that don't do they, – they don't think about either, and they figured it out. Why does it have to be so complicated? Right. So if you had to leave us with your top two to three tips – uh, related to flux, what would those be? Uh, the big thing, like like I talked about exercise, but if, if you're dealing with a client, whether it's weightlifting or whatever, find the thing that they're going to do and they're going to do consistently to then push it if that's where you want to go. And then on top of that, the, the negatives of flux, especially when you're dealing with, with weight loss clients, is, is they have to realize that it is that two-pronged approach like if something doesn't go right on one thing or your environment changes or you're not lifting it's it's also dangerous not dangerous but it's also counter counterproductive to be in high flux so to speak but then your energy levels drop and you're eating all these calories and then you're at the same spot you were before so it's just know know that there's downsides to it know that it works but you have to you have to basically be a coach yeah. So, yeah, especially since I think most of us listening are doing this for the the long term, right? We're not just about all mm -hmm. the the short term gains with the Z. It's it's we're talking to people yeah. who want to be better over the course of their lifetime, or people who are already bought in to to being a lifer. I have awesome. Where can people find more information about you if they wanted to hunt you down and listen to your podcast? Yeah, I'm pretty easy. Um, I just Instagram is the place where I live a lot of times, so it's I got the the old powerlifting handle, but it's uh, Guido G U E D O dot power. <laughs> I was obviously a powerlifter, so I had to put that. And I just didn't change <laughs> it. Um, and then and then so I used to have a podcast. So we actually had our last episode like episode 150 with Alex Fiata. Oh. We had our last episode for the Fitness Devil and that'll be transferring to my my co-host and he's I don't know what he's calling it. He's calling it like eat free lift hard or something. Uh, and <laughs> now I'm I, I'm uh, doing my side project which is now my main project it's called The Pump. And basically we talk about a lot of stuff we talked about here it's a lot of lifting culture but with lifters and and with coaches but trying to be less about the fitness industry as a whole and more about things that we actually do which is lifting and trying to get into the weeds about either research or or lifting or just kind of being stupid and kind of telling stupid uh, meathead lifting stories which I, I always find fascinating because I, I tend to learn the most when I find all the dumb stuff and I, I keep going back to that but all the stuff that people did when when there wasn't Instagram and there wasn't YouTube those seem to be my favorite stories about um, lifting culture, in my opinion. So that's where you can find all the other stuff I do. And that's a YouTube page and found anywhere they have podcasts. So, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, Knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.